if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's word, which comes this morning from the book of Romans, chapter 15, verses 12 and 13. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will appear, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles, and the Gentiles will hope in him. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we're so grateful for the joy and the peace and the hope that you give to us when we believe by the power of your Spirit. Help us to set aside all distractions and diversions right now as we hearken to your word. We ask you to bless your messenger, Jeff, and continue to accept the praise of a grateful people as we continue to worship this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Michelle. Well, good morning. Great to see you all. Are you glad Paul's here? Who said no? Summer is, my <laughs> summer is my favorite time as well, but it is nice to kind of have this flipping of a switch with the weather. Isn't that nice? For those of you who just moved here to Idaho Falls, it's going to be like that for a couple more weeks, and then it'll be winter, so welcome. <laughs> Glad you're here. Uh, just one ha- housekeeping item that I have to bring up is my Wednesday night class. It's in this uh, brochure here, in this discipleship um, thing, booklet. Um, That class is filling up pretty quick, so I think I've got about five slots left. So if you were planning on attending that on a Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, right here, uh, please do sign up today. You can do that online. Go to our website, and you can find the the, uh, sign-up link there. Well, so far, Paul has hammered home, I think you would agree, a couple of messages. (laughs) The one is, just to reiterate, no one is righteous not even one. And the other message is, God in the gospel has now revealed the righteousness of God. And it's by faith from first to last, which means from Abraham to us, to those who now believe in Christ and are blessed along with Abraham to to be justified by faith. So he's been hammering that message home But now here in chapter 5, he is going to uh, really pivot. He's going to really turn uh, his focus now to the consequences of a justifying faith. That's what he's going to turn to. I'll put just a few stats up on the board here. You can look at the screen and see just how differently now he's going to begin to talk about this matter of faith. The words faith and believe occur 33 times in the first four chapters but they only occur three times in the next four. So the words faith, trust, belief, you will only find them three more times in the next four chapters. Uh, In addition to that, the words life and live occur only two times in the first four chapters, but they will occur 24 times in the next four chapters. Think about that. And then the word hope equally becomes significant as well There are lots of passages where Paul is going to sort of summarize what he has to say by telling us about our hope. So hope is going to become a very important theme in this book as well. Paul's rhetoric changes too. The first four chapters were characterized by a polemical rhetoric, and so his polemical tendency is going to be replaced with a personal tone of friendship and solidarity and unity. Paul's focus shifts from the righteousness revealed by the gospel 
to the life that is the consequence now of justifying faith in the Gospels. We're going to see that. So for those uh, who say that Romans is just about justification by faith, okay, that is not accurate, okay? Romans is not just about being justified by faith. Romans is, has a whole lot more to say than, our, uh, than about our initial justifying faith. But today's main thought is that justifying faith results in peace with God. It results in peace with God. Now, in chapter five, he's gonna tell us about a lot of the benefits of justifying faith. But we can only cover one today. And the one we're gonna look at today is peace. That's because it's stated in verse one as a fact, but then it's in verses six through 11 that he really unpacks that. It's verses six through 11 that he tells us why it is that we need peace and what God has done to make peace with us, okay? So how so? How has God justified, or how is this a justifying faith resulting in peace with God? The first thing we need to know here is that as justified believers, we've been pardoned, not paroled. We've been pardoned, not paroled. Verse one, it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse nine, how much more than since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from God's wrath? Now there's a very prevalent uh, teaching among scholars and in the church today that we still await final justification. That is to say, it's still a future verdict that's out there. And uh, essentially this idea is, listen, right now you're, you're paroled. And you better be good. Because someday you're going to stand before God and, and God is really going to decide in that moment whether or not you're, you've received justification, whether you're being declared in right standing in his court. Now, I have to tell you, all of the New Testament passages that speak of justification are in the past tense. And they're not just in the past tense, okay? They're in what's called the pluperfect. Remember that from elementary school or grammar class? All of you are shaking your head like, of course, of course we remember what the pluperfect is. Yes, the pluperfect tense is the mode of completion in the past. It's not just the past. It's a past completed act, which means it's been done and it won't be done again. So understand now that our justification, we have to see how the New Testament talks about this justifying faith and this pardon that we have received. And so there's this idea that, listen, God has bailed you out. He's put up the bail. You're out on good behavior. Clean up your act. Hopefully during this probationary period, you'll be able to make sure that you're worthy of grace. And that just turns salvation into nothing more than a provisional pardon, pending our future compliance. Should we fail to meet with God with our heavenly parole officer, you know, in daily devotions, or should we fail to do those good things that we feel compelled to do or not compelled to do? Should we fail in all of that, we might receive the, just, that, the verdict that we're not justified by faith. And so believers today can live with a kind of anxiety over their eternal status because they're worried. They may have sinned themselves out of grace. But look at the finality with which Paul describes justification. Now, we read verse 9. He says, you have already been justified. Having been justified, there's that pluperfect, right? Look at what he says in chapter 8, verse 30. He says, and those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So from God's perspective, it's a done deal. 
everything that God is doing in us in Christ from His perspective is done. 1 Corinthians 6.11, he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, even our sanctification, which is an ongoing, unfolding process where you and I are conforming to the image of God's Son, where we're conforming to the likeness of His Word, even our sanctification from God's point of view, when God sees you, God sees Christ's righteousness. He sees Jesus' finished work on the cross for you. As Charles Spurgeon famously said, the Christian life is a matter of working out what God has already worked in. Titus 3.7 says, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. So listen, in one very significant way, not in every way, because we still await final resurrection, we still await the, await the new creation and being saved to God's new world. There are parts of our inheritance that we are still waiting for. We're still waiting for heaven. Hopefully you're not in too much of a hurry to get there. But in a very real sense, significantly, you and I are as saved today as we are ever going to be. I'll say it again. You're as saved today as you are ever going to be. You have been justified. You've received this grace by faith. So we're not on probation. We're pardoned. Amen. Number two, our peace isn't merely a ceasefire, but a covenantal relationship. The peace that we have been given is not merely the absence of hostility. It's not merely the ceasing of conflict. It's a covenantal relationship that you and I have been brought into. We have been brought into the covenant family of God. I want to show you that. Now, it can be said that we have, the United States, that we have peace with many nations. Technically, we have peace with Russia and China, don't we? Or we're not in open war with them. But what kind of peace is it? Well, it's mostly the absence of open hostility, isn't it? That's one kind of peace. That is one kind of peace. But this idea of irene, that's the word he uses here. It translates the Old Testament Hebrew word shalom, this beautiful word that you've heard a lot. Shalom, which just means the peace of God, covenant peace with God. But now contrast that kind of absence of hostility, peace with the warm affection that we feel toward the UK, even though we had to whip them a, a few years ago, <laughs> right? So we broke away from uh, England, but then think of uh, last week, since Thursday, the warm expressions and the condolences and the warm affection we feel toward the United Kingdom at the loss of their queen. She's not our queen. We're not Canada. We're not Grenada. We're not Belize. We, she's, we're not one of the realm. We're not a nation of the realm, but we have this strong affection and peace. So it's a kind of peace where there's actually a good and cordial active relationship. And that's more the idea here. The peace treaty that we have with God is the new covenant in Jesus' blood, and you and I don't just have an absence of hostility or conflict. You and I have been brought into a covenant family, a family where we have active and cordial fellowship with the Lord and His family. 
And so I want to take you back to a couple of passages. I've talked about these a lot. I'm going to talk about them again a lot in the future. But it's Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel. In chapters 34 and 37, he saw a day when God would enact a new covenant of peace with the divided houses of Israel and Judah. And then through that, to sweep into that covenant all the Gentile nations of the world. Ezekiel 34 is a prophetic oracle. It's a prophetic message. God is fed up. Man, if you ever want to read a passage where God is totally fed up, read Ezekiel 34. And he is fed up with the kings in the line of David. He calls them shepherds. And what he says there in chapter 34 is he says, you haven't done what you're supposed to be doing as shepherd kings. The shepherds feed themselves. They don't feed the flock. The shepherds don't go after my lost sheep among the nations. They don't bind up the broken sheep. They don't do anything that they've been charged to do as king. And God says, I am done with that. And here's what he says. I'm going to be the king. I, myself, from here on out, I'm going to be their king. Verse 11, he says, for this is what the Lord says. The Lord God says, see, I myself will search for my flock, and I will look for them. He goes on to say, I will search for the lost. I will rescue them and bring them back to my land. I will feed them. I will bind up their wounds. I myself am going to be their king. Their king is going to be God. How? Verses 23 and 24. I love this. So, I will establish over them one shepherd, my servant David. David has been dead for 400 years. Who's he talking about? He's not talking about the line. He's talking about a new David, a David-eyed, a son of David. And I'm going to establish over them, he says, one shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them, and he will tend them himself, and he will be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be a prince among them, and I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with my people. This is, what, this, is this new covenant of peace between Judah and Israel that God is going to make, and he's going to do it through a son who now embodies his reign, who embodies his kingship. And then in Ezekiel chapter 37, this is a really interesting passage. It starts out with this famous picture of the Valley of Dry Bones. Have you heard of this? In the Old Testament, there's this valley of, of dead bones. There's a bunch of dead people. And so the vision that Ezekiel receives here is, this is Israel. Israel and Judah lie in this valley, dead bones just laying out on the ground, and then suddenly this wind, this ruach, this breeze, it's the Spirit of God comes blowing into the valley and reassembles all the bones, and suddenly sinew and muscle and flesh, and they stand upright, and, and this is a beautiful picture of God saying, I'm going to resurrect you. I'm going to bring the dead back to life, and here's how he does it. Chapter 37, verses 23, again, 23 and 24, he says, I will save them from all their apostasies by which they sinned, and I will cleanse them. So what I'm going to do is remove the sin. I'm going to atone for their sins. I'm going to cleanse their sins, cleanse them of their sins. And my servant David will be king over them, and there will be one shepherd for all of them. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be a permanent covenant with them. 
I will establish and multiply them and will set my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And so what's the key? The key to this new covenant of peace in which God is going to reunify Israel and Judah, reunify the kingdom and then sweep all the nations into this covenant of peace is this new David this new embodiment of his reign and his rule, this king. And he will reconstitute the people of God, resurrecting them from the dead. And he will cleanse them from all their sins and he will be high, the high king of heaven over them. This is the permanent covenant of peace, God says, I'm going to establish with you and the nations. Colossians chapter one, look at this astonishing passage, how Paul then uses this language to describe Jesus. He says in Colossians chapter one, he says, for God was pleased to have his fullness uh, dwell in him, the fullness of God dwelling in the person of Christ and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. This is how the new covenant of peace comes. He says, once you were alienated, he's talking to Gentiles, and you were hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. He says, but now you have been reconciled, made peace with you by his physical, he has reconciled, made peace with you by his physical body through his death to present you holy and faultless and blameless before him. So he's using all this language that's in the Old Testament to say God has done this. God has brought a new covenant of peace and this is the way you have become part of the family of God. Hebrews 13, 19 through 20, he says, now may the God of peace who brought you up from the dead, that's Ezekiel 37, who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, that's Ezekiel 34, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with everything good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. When Paul says we have been justified resulting in peace with God, we have to understand it's not just a statement about the end of our conflict with God because we have offended his holiness. It's a statement about us being brought into a covenant relationship with him, the people of God. We are the redeemed, washed, sanctified, justified people of the Lord. Number three, we needed peace with God because we were helpless to end our hostility toward God. We were helpless to end our hostility toward God. So he says here, and you look down at verse six, he says we were helpless. We were helpless in our sins. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ dies for the ungodly. So he tells us we were helpless and ungodly. And this term for helpless is the word asthene, and it means utterly without capacity. It's the same word that's used in the Gospels when it talks about paralytics being brought before Jesus. And they're on these mats and they could do nothing, nothing to help themselves at all. What do you think of when you think of the word helpless? What do you think of? Some of you might think of a little baby. Like when you hold a brand new newborn in your arms, I see little Samuel over here, and you hold that little baby, you, you really get a sense of just how helpless a child is, how utterly vulnerable they are. 
in my mind, the first thing that actually pops into my mind is when I was 17 years old and I stayed in the north of England, I have very warm affection for that country, and I stayed in the north around Chester or Manchester, and I was helping out a church there for the summer. They were a church plant, and they were doing a lot to reach their community, and I was staying with several of their families, and I was part of several of their ministry teams. And one of the families that I stayed with there in Gorton, uh, they were really interesting. Uh, As soon as I got there, the dad, Nigel, wanted to show me this boat that he had been working on and he had been refurbishing. And he's like, come on out and look at it. I was like, yeah, sweet, let's look at it. So he takes the cover off and it was just beautiful. He had just made it totally seaworthy. He had been working on it for a long time. He said, we're gonna take it on holiday. I said, what's holiday? I said, which holiday? (laughs) You know, he said, "Uh, vacation. You know, like that's what you call vacation. I said, great. So we went to Wales, which was cool. And uh, he pulls that boat right out on the beach and he pulls it out there and we back it up. He unhitches it. And then he says, okay, Jeff, what we have to do now is we have to push it out into the ocean. I was like, hmm, this is different. So we, I hopped out of the truck. I got back there. We start pushing. I'm not kidding. We were pushing this boat into an ocean that's pushing it back at us. And finally, I almost used up all of my strength to help him get this boat out into the water. Now, his son, James, was the same age as me. James had advanced MS. James had no use of his body from the chest down. James could barely lift his arms about this high, about shoulder high. He could not grab onto anything. And so James is sitting in his wheelchair, in his electric wheelchair right there, on uh, the beach, and he's sitting there, and Nigel gets up in the boat. Once we get it out into the water, he lets the anchor down. He says, okay, Jeff, now bring James out. I said, okay. (laughs) So I go over. He's about my size. I've weighed about a buck 40, you know, like I was about 140 pounds. So I go out, and, uh, and and I grab him underneath. I unstrap him, and I grab him out of this chair, and when I picked him up, I almost fell backward into the water. I did not anticipate just how much dead weight he would be. And I said, well, hold on to me, buddy. He said, I can't. I can't hold on to you. (laughs) And that's what he said. And and I said, oh, that's okay. We'll get there. And so I literally had him like this, and I was walking backwards toward the boat into the ocean. I was dragging him toward the boat. And his dad is standing there on the boat giving me directions. So I get him over to the side of the boat, and I hoisted him up as high as I could, and his dad grabbed the back of his coat and tried to pull him onto the boat, but he slipped. And he fell onto me, and we both went under the water. And just immediately, I thought, this kid's going to drown. Oh, my gosh, James is going to drown. So I, I just shuffled to my feet and picked him up. And when he came up, he couldn't, you know how it is when you panic, your body, it just it manifests in your body? He couldn't do that. And so he was just crying out, I'm drowning, Father. He did. Oh, Father, I'm drowning. I go, no, you're not. I got you. And so I brought him back over to the boat. I heaved him up again. Now he's just soaking wet from head to toe. And his dad grabbed him from under and just hoisted him onto the boat. And the rest of the day was just a lovely afternoon. <laughs> but that's the picture that I think of when Paul says, while we were still helpless, incapacitated, without any strength in us at all to get on the Jesus boat, without any power, no steam, no energy, 
no grip strength. We were utterly helpless to save ourselves, but it's worse than that. We were not just helpless, we were hostile. Notice what he says here, verses 7 through 10. He says, for rarely will someone die for, just, for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. That's a soldier going to war for his country, right? But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, underline that word, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? See, a sinner is not just a person who is helpless and needs rescue. A sinner is hostile to God. A person who lives according to their own authority and according to their own rule is actually an enemy of God. And so we are helpless, but we are helpless to end our hostility toward the Lord. And there is a massive effort today in scholarship and in the church to turn sin into just mistakes or hang-ups or annoying habits or maybe psychological disorders. And sure enough, sin can become all of those things, no doubt. But Paul says the sinner is ungodly, not like God, opposed to God. And while we were in a state of sin, we were hostile to God and His holiness. You say, wait a minute, I thought the, the Bible said God loves us. He says right here, doesn't God love us? It's because of His love that He sent Christ to die for us. I thought God loved us. I, I thought if He loves us, then how can we be His enemies? Those things don't seem congruent. They don't seem to fit in the same sentence, but they do. God loves the person who is helpless and hostile. God loves the person who is an enemy of His rule. Romans eleven twenty eight. he says of his Jewish countrymen, notice this, he says, regarding the gospel, they are enemies which has been to your advantage. Who? The Jews. Right now, they have set themselves against the gospel. They are the enemies of God. But regarding election, they are loved because God, uh, they are loved because of the descendants. Loved by God because of the des- they are descendants of the patriarch. So if a child grows up and decides they despise you and want nothing to do with you, that doesn't change your heart for that child. That that doesn't change your relentless stance toward them. You love them. Even if you have to make some hard choices and allow them to suffer some consequences of poor decisions. You can love a person who is a self-declared enemy of your values and your beliefs and your love. James 4, verse 4, he says, you adulterous people. There's a way to start a conversation. (laughs) He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? He says, friendship with the world is hostility toward God. So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Do we see how cut and dry this is in the scriptures? If we want to embrace the world's value system and the world's belief system, we automatically put ourselves in enmity toward God. We become hostile toward God. So understand, God now has for us torn down this wall and removed the barrier of sin between himself and us and between Jew and Gentile. I'll say it again. God has torn down the barrier. He's torn down the wall. 
and he's removed the barrier of sin that was between himself and us and between us and each other. Every generation has certain defining events. For my mom's generation, that would be growing up in post-World War II society, going from the prosperity of the 50s to the turmoil of the 60s, and then the desegregation world of the 70s. She witnessed on TV the assassination of JFK, MLK, and Robert Kennedy. She remembers the coming and going of the Vietnam War and the rise and ultimate demise of Elvis. When Elvis died in the 70s, we had like a week of mourning in our house. It was like a family, it was like Queen Elizabeth had died for us. Now for me, those events were different. Growing up in the 80s, it was the Reagan Revolution. You may not believe this, but it was really cool in the 80s to be conservative. <laughs> I remember talk of Glasnost and Perestroika, the Challenger space shuttle, sitting in class, watching the Challenger space shuttle explode on TV as we were watching it. And the most famous historical event of that era, which is the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. This event paved the way for the reunification of Germany just a year later and the liberation of Central and Eastern European countries previously bound under the Warsaw Pact with the Soviet Union. Now, on one side, you could see it very clearly portrayed on the news almost every night. There was this wall. On one side of the wall was communism. And communism always brings a prison state. People who live in communist countries live in a prison state because the theory of communism strips them of their personal identity, you're stripped of your uh, I, I, uh, individual freedoms, there is no, or no free market to speak of, and so it's a lack of freedom. But then on the other side of that wall is freedom. People are enjoying life, and you can see it played out. They have democracy and elections and a free market to freely exchange goods. Now, someone else very famous uh, died last week, too. Do you know who it was other than Queen Elizabeth? Mikhail Gorbachev, the last ruler of the Soviet Empire. He was the last one, and he died as well. And with his death, we are reminded of the fall of the Berlin Wall, which marked a new beginning for Europe. I remember watching it unfold. I remember on TV, I watched it unfold, and Dan Brannigan actually gave me a piece of the wall. He gave it to me this morning. How prophetic that he knew I was going to speak on this. And so I remember watching that wall come down, and at the time it was unimaginable. It was like the reversal of Roe v. Wade. You just thought in my lifetime I'll probably never see this. When, when Reagan went over there and stood there and said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, everybody thought, that's a nice sentiment. And here it was playing out on TV right in front of you. Right in front of you, it was happening. The wall was being torn down, and this divisive thing that kept these two peoples apart was over. And over 30 years later, the wall has been torn down longer than it stood as a barrier, as a symbol of hostility and imprisonment. And while that wall stood, no one would live near, uh, would live near it. Today, home values, where the wall used to be, have skyrocketed some 400%, as it has all over the world. The famous checkpoint, Charlie, is now a tourist trap, with shops and restaurants and cafes lining the streets and millions of international tourists bringing in millions of dollars. 
They come to see the remnants of a world that should never have been. And what was once the very symbol of our hostility between us and God, you know what the symbol was? Can I tell you what it is? It's the curtain in the temple. At the end of the Gospels, this is how the Gospels end. Jesus dies on a cross before he resurrects from the dead, and the curtain is ripped in the temple. Where is the curtain? It's between the holy of holies, the most holy place, the, inter, the inner sanctum where God's presence manifests to the high priest, where God's presence manifests on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, and everything else, which means that curtain said everything beyond this curtain, everything outside of this is defiled, not welcome. And the curtain is ripped, and so this dividing wall between God and us is removed at Jesus' death. We have peace with God. We have entered this covenant where you and I have peace with Almighty God, and the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, which no one at the time thought could ever be demolished. When would this ever fall between Jew and Gentile? The animosity between these two groups was just too great. And here's what Paul says. I want to read it to you. Ephesians 2, 13 through 15, beautiful passage. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, you Gentiles, for he is our peace. He is our covenant of peace who made both groups, the Jew and the Gentile, one and he tore down the dividing wall of hostility. And in his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man, one new people from the two resulting in peace. We have peace with God and we have peace with each other because Jesus has brought us into this new and better covenant. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Bow your head, close your eyes. Let's focus on Jesus right now. Let me ask you a question. Have you been justified by faith? Because if you have, you, you would have peace with God. Do you have peace with God sitting here right now? And if you don't, this is the time. This is the moment in which you come and confess that you are a sinner, helpless and hostile in your sin to a holy God. And you confess that you need him to do for you what you could not possibly do for yourself. God, we want to thank you that we received a full and gracious pardon, not some temporary and tenuous parole. You haven't paroled us. You pardoned us. You brought us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light of your glorious Son, and we praise you for pardoning us of sin. And we thank you that we have true and lasting peace in this new covenant made in the new David, who by his blood shed for us has brought us into one holy family of God. And the dividing wall of hostility between us and God and between us and our fellow man is gone. Praise the Lord. And God, though we were helpless in our sin, though we were hostile and we were rebels in your realm, hostile to the reign of your grace and truth, now the wall that separate us has, has separated us has been torn and we live in the abundant and ample resources of grace. Praise the Lord. Praise God Almighty. We praise you, Lord, for this peace that we have received in Christ. And if you 
are here this morning and you need to receive that peace with Christ, receive it right now. To those who received him, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Receive him in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you.